Welcome to the Ideas That Change the World podcast with Rabbi Manus Friedman, where we make sure your life will be changed for the better, one idea at a time. Rabbi Friedman is the number one voice of clarity on moral and social issues. So what are we waiting for? Let's go change the world. How to make babies, you only think you know how, basically draws on the uh, Talmud and on the Zohar and on tradition where we're told that the circumstances in which a baby is conceived contributes greatly to the quality, to the nature, to the character, and to the health of the child. This is something our ancestors knew, perhaps instinctively, or maybe they were taught, maybe they were told, maybe this was something every bride and groom was informed of and and instructed in in the good old days. But the subject has been neglected for a while, and we need to refresh our memory, so to speak, on these subjects. Here's a talk given at Midtown Manhattan Chabad House on the subject of making babies. This is a uh, specialized subject for a special group. It's a subject that uh, I think is very timely, a subject that has been neglected. I don't know why or what possible uh, justification there can be for neglecting such a subject, but it shouldn't be neglected any longer. Let's start from the beginning. In the beginning, before God created heaven and earth, God had a desire. The desire was to create the lowest possible most physical, most finite universe, and from this lowly, physical, finite universe, make a divine home. Because without this world, God is everywhere, and he's everything. Which we all know also means that he's nowhere, and that he's nothing. Because when you're everywhere, you're nowhere. So God wanted a home, a place where he belongs, not just all places, but a special place. And Hasidus explains this at great length. Why is it that that kind of a home for God can be fashioned, can be created only out of the lowest possible existence? But that's another subject. In the beginning, God desired a home. And the home can only be in the physical. Not in heaven, it has to be on earth. But it's the plan that is the beginning. 5,762 years later, how is the plan doing? Are we happy yet? (laughs) Are we better off now than 5,000 years ago? How's it going? If we want to chart follow the plan on a graph or on a chart. What we're looking for is godliness becoming familiar and comfortable in the physical world. So for many years, even after the event at Sinai, for many years, God and this world were strangers. If you talked about godly subjects, you were otherworldly. 
I mean, to some degree, that's true today, too. If you talk about God, you're otherworldly. Unless you're being skeptical about God, then you're normal. If you talk about spiritual things, then you're being spiritual, heavenly, not earthy. But that changes from time to time. And we move on that chart, we move to where the divine and the physical are coming closer together to the point where they're actually merging and becoming indistinguishable. For example, in physics, the physicist's description of physical matter today sounds like Kabbalah. It sounds like mysticism. The scientist, the physicist today says, what is this table? A probability wave. Did you ever hear anything more spiritual than that? You say, well, probability wave, but what is it? It's a probability wave. Yeah, but what is this probability ma wave made out of? Well, it's made out of a probability. That's it. That's what this is. The physicist speaks like a mystic. Because as we become more and more sophisticated in the sciences, we realize more and more the divine nature of this world. One of the areas in which this is becoming apparent, there's a little book written by a psychologist, a Jewish woman, who basically says the following. I'm not recommending the book, I'm just using a little uh, one nugget. Basically what she says is this. She was trained to be a psychologist. And she was told that when she gets young clients, children with behavioral problems or learning problems, emotional problems, they're going to be coming. This was the impression she got at school. They're going to be coming from broken families, dysfunctional families, shattered families. And that's going to be the background out of which their problems will derive, and you're going to treat them and try to heal those wounds. She's been in practice for many years, she says, and something is not adding up. Something's wrong. Because the vast majority of all the children who come to her for therapy don't come from broken families or from underprivileged families or from dysfunctional families. And so she was wondering, what, what happened here? Who's crazy? Until one day she was sitting in a class with a rabbi, and I, f I forget exactly what they were studying or how, how the subject came up, but the point of it is that she realized, and now she's speaking as a professional, so she realized that the reason these children have emotional problems, the reason they have behavioral problems, the reason that they are not functional, listen to this, the reason, the, the, the analysis, the diagnosis of these children's problem is that they are dysfunctional, they're basically crazy, because they sat in their father's chair. That's her analysis. And since that discovery, since that awakening she had, this is how she treats all young people. You want to be normal? 
You want to be healthy? Don't sit in your father's seat. Of course, that's not the only thing. Don't talk back to your mother. If you talk back to your mother, you are crazy. It's not that because of some problem, because of some trauma that happened many years ago, that's why you now talk back to your mother. No, talking back to your mother is the illness. That's the sickness. So basically what she says is this. Children grow up without definition. They're supposed to have a good self-image, but they have no idea who the self is because it's undefined. There are no borders. There are no definitions. Who's the father? Who's the mother? About a year ago, I had this experience where a mother asked me to get together with her and her teenage daughter to discuss an issue. She's raising her alone. The father is not in the picture anymore. And the mother had become an observant woman over the past 10 or so, so years. And the daughter is running around with boyfriends, with Jewish boys, non-Jewish boys. And the mother is trying to stop her from doing this. So we sat down, and the mother had made it sound like we were going to discuss. We'll talk. So I hear what the mother has to say. I hear what she has to say. And then the mother gets really emotional. And she starts to cry. She says, look, I'm raising you alone. She's talking to her daughter. She says, I'm raising you alone. You, you know that that's not easy. I'm trying to give you a, a life that is meaningful and so on and so forth. This is important to me. You know how important. I gave up everything, the non-kosher food. I gave everything up to be an observant Jew. You know how important it is to me. Why do you have to do this? And there was a particular boy that she didn't like. Why do you have to run around with him? The daughter, when she noticed that her mother was starting to cry and get emotional, rolled her eyes. Like, oh, no, ah, this again. So I turned to the mother and I said, this meeting is over. I'm sorry, I can't talk to you anymore. She said, why not? I said, because she rolled your, her eyes at you. And you don't even care. You let her do it. There's something very wrong with your relationship. And it has nothing to do with which boys she's dating. I said, I can't, I can't do this. This is completely off the beaten path. A daughter rolls her eyes at her mother who's crying, I can't handle this. I have nothing more to say to you. I was hoping the daughter would be shocked. No, the mother was shocked. So afterwards, the mother called me and said, what, you know, why wouldn't you talk? I said, you, you, you can't discuss your daughter's activities when she doesn't even know how to be a daughter. She's not your daughter. A daughter does not roll her eyes at her mother's pain. Basically, this is what this woman is saying in her book. If a child can sit in his father's seat, then he has lost all definition in his life. Father, son, child, adult, everything is confused. You've lost your borders. You've lost your sanity. So, in order for a child to be healthy in the most earthy sense of the word, which turns out to be also the most divine sense of the word, because they're they're the same. If you want to be a, a basically healthy child, you have to live by the fifth commandment. It's like you can't fool Mother Nature. 
And the fifth commandment is a description of nature. It's not a noble idea to honor your father and mother. It's not a religious concept. It's not a heavenly principle. It's a definition of sanity. Mother nature. You talk back to your mother, you're disturbed. And if the mother allows you to talk back to her, she's disturbed. The boundaries have been violated, and no one seems to notice. I talked about this last time. When the headline says, concerning Israel, which is another subject, when the headline says, Israel invades Hebron. I mean, is that insane? I thought Hebron was Israel. When you lose your borders, it's not just a violation of some religious code. You're not normal. Israel invades Hebron? The child who speaks back to his mother is a disturbed child. And the fact that we don't care the fact that mothers allow their children to talk back to them only proves that we're very far from healthy. It hasn't become any more acceptable or normal. It's just that we've gotten callous to our own illness. And of course, it doesn't stop there. I was talking to a group of young boys. It's become acceptable or considered normal that little boys love their dog or their pet much more than they love their parents. And that's normal, right? That's the way it is, right? I said to this, to this boy, do you sit in your father's seat? He says, what's my father's seat? There's no seat in the house that he can identify as his father's seat. I said, so you sit in your father's seat. Does your dog sleep in your bed? He says, sure. So you sit in your father's seat and your dog sleeps in your bed. Is this an illness? And you can say, well, you know, it's innocent, a big deal. What's the problem? Well, the problem is that eventually, and this is what it's come to today, if you ask the average boy, if your father was beating up your dog, who would you side with? If you walked in and saw your father and your dog in a battle to the, to the end, who would you shoot? He has to think about it. If the dog sleeps in your bed and you sit in your father's chair, all your borders, all your borders have been violated. And eventually, you don't know who you're supposed to defend, your dog or your father, Lahavdul. That's not disturbed? There's another area in which divine wisdom and practical experience are becoming one and the same. And that is in the area of making babies. It's amazing. It's, it's frightening, actually, how something so common, something everybody engages in, something so essential to li life itself, not essential to life, life itself, and we know nothing about it. 
that in the world of medicine, in the medical world, fertility and infertility is a mystical subject. With all the knowledge and with all the uh, technology, we basically don't know what makes a person infertile or fertile. It's a matter of mood, it's tension, it's, it's hormones, it's, it's hereditary. We, we basically don't know. Well, let's talk just common sense. What does it mean to make a baby? What does that mean? It means setting into motion a process by which a human being will be born. Just intuitively, does it make any sense that that can be done by a machine? Can you create a machine that will generate human beings? Obviously not. Can a human being be generated from a purely mechanical or physical activity? Obviously not. Because what you're giving birth to is not a physical object. You're giving birth to a living being, to a human being, to an intelligent being, and to a spiritual being. Have we learned this lesson convincingly? If you feed your child and give him a really nice room and really cool clothes, is he going to be happy? Is he going to be healthy? Is he going to be nice? Of course not. You have to feed his mind. You have to feed his soul. You have to feed his heart. You're not talking about a mechanical being. And if you take care of all their physical needs, it doesn't produce a happy child. It can't. Because a child is only 10% physical. It's 90% mystical, particularly in a child. Unfortunately, as he grows older, the proportions change. It becomes maybe 50-50 at best. But the child, the child is primarily an emotion, a needy emotion. And then there's a body attached to it, too. There are diapers, you know, but that's only 10%. Primarily, the life of a child for the first nine years has to do with ideas, with feelings, with relationships, with connections. It has very little to do with nutrition. Children under the most impossible conditions, starvation, disease, and so on, grew up to be incredible human beings. And children with the best nutrition are turning out to be little monsters who roll their eyes at their mother's pain. So what does it mean to create a baby? To create a baby means to reproduce all your problems in another person, to pass on all your faults, all your pains, all your frustrations to another person, and then spend the rest of your life trying to tell them how to handle it. Because <laughs> you've had experience with it. Let's see what Torah says about this. We now know, without having to look it up in ancient books, we know that a fetus 
is a human being. I'm not talking from a legal perspective, but a fetus is a human being. A fetus has awareness. A fetus has emotions. It has needs. It responds and reacts to the atmosphere in which it lives. It hears the parents' discussions or, or conversations and reacts to it. Therefore, children can be born literally from the moment of birth with a definite personality or with a definite identifiable personality flaw. Children are not frightened during toilet training. Children can be born frightened. Most children are. <laughs> it's frightening. Children can be born angry. They are. Ask any nurse in a, in a maternity ward. They know which babies are ready to bite their nose off if they had teeth. They're born angry. And there are children born discouraged. They are born discouraged. Life is just too difficult for them. They can't nurse, they can't breathe, they can't function. They're discouraged. They're children born grieving. This can happen in a number of ways. And I'm talking now strictly from a medical, not from a, not from a Torah perspective. There are a number of ways that this can happen. Number one, at the time of conception or during the pregnancy, the mother or the father experienced a very traumatic emotion. Grief, anger, despair, fear. And that emotion implanted itself on this fetus that was in the process of developing. And that emotion became one of the ingredients that fashions and molds this child in its development. Another possibility is that this emotion was experienced by the parent long before conception. And it had implanted itself in the parent as a permanent characteristic, and a permanent ingredient in the parent. And therefore, just as the parent passes on his genetic code to the child, he will pass on his emotional code. Because those emotions have become him or her. So when we say hereditary, hereditary is not limited to the genetic code. We inherit many things, good things as well as bad. Children born after a Holocaust, for example, to survivors of the Holocaust, inherit some awesome emotions, characteristics. On the one hand, the horrors, and on the other hand, the heroic strengths that allowed the parents to survive and actually have the courage to start a family. Those emotions do not dissipate over time in the parent. They just burrow in deeper and deeper until it becomes as real as the genetic code, maybe more real. There's even a possibility that those emotions rearrange the genetic code in the parents. Because we know that psychosomatic effect is very real. 
If you have a very intense emotional experience, it can change the dynamics of the body. It can actually change you on a cellular level. That's because all physical phenomena derive from an intangible principle. E equals mc squared. That's a principle, not a fact. And from that principle, you get the facts. It determines the fact, because fact follows principle, not the other way around. Because first there was God, then there was Earth. I just was talking to somebody this afternoon on the same theme. This man who was suffering from suicidal attacks that he could not control, and all the therapy that he went to didn't help. And he finally turned to spiritual possibilities. And he asked me if there is some mystical, Kabbalistic explanation for the suicidal impulses, and is there a solution somehow, someplace in Torah? Psychology's approach is, if a person is suicidal, then obviously something happened during his lifetime that is so intimidating and so discouraging and so frightening that he has to get himself out of it at all costs, including suicide. So in the process of the therapy, they kept looking for that traumatic event that would explain the suicidal impulse. And of course, they didn't find any. So the man says to me, besides what this is doing to my career, he was a professional, besides what it's doing to my wife and children, what it's doing to my parents, this I can't forgive myself for. Three times he had to be resuscitated. But what it's doing to my parents, he says, for this I can't forgive myself. My parents went through the war, and now I'm putting them through this. So I said, let's try something else. Let's assume that there was nothing in your life, nothing so terrible, that would justify even a thought of suicide much less an irresistible impulse. Let's assume that nothing happened in your life that justifies killing yourself, that necessitates killing yourself. But can you imagine a person in his right mind who does need to kill himself, justifiably? He said, no. It's terrible. It's wrong. I said, but sometimes, somewhere, certain people justifiably of sound mind need to kill themselves. He couldn't think of an example. So I said, well, let's take your father. He went through the concentration camp. He was 17 years old. He didn't know what it was until one day it dawned on him what that chimney was all about. The smoke and the... And he realized that every day more and more of the people his age were disappearing. Wouldn't he be justified in killing himself? He said, my father wasn't in a concentration camp. My mother was. So your mother is 14, 15 during the war, and she's in a concentration camp, and one of the Nazi guards says to her, you're too pretty to be among these people. I'll come back later, and I'll take you away from all of this. Shouldn't she kill herself? Now suppose doesn't have to be true. But suppose that that happened to your mother. And for a few hours, 
she desperately needed to kill herself before he came back. Justifiably, morally, sanely, responsibly, she needed to kill herself. Then the allies came in, and they were liberated. And she didn't need to kill herself. Where did those feelings go? You simply dismiss it, say, okay, so I won't kill myself. <laughs> Where did it go? Maybe you inherited that feeling. Maybe when you have this urge to kill yourself, you're simply having a flashback. Not to something that happened in your life, something that happened in your mother's life. He says, how's that going to help me? I said, well, next time you have this feeling, simply say to yourself, wow, this is what my mother felt when she was 15. That's all. It's a sympathy pain. It's not about you. It's about her. Next day he comes over to me, he says, um, last night I forgot to tell you something. I have another problem. I'm paranoid. He's, he's genuinely paranoid. He is paranoid, he has this paranoia about coming late to anything, to a dentist's appointment. He's afraid to come late. He has this thing in his head where he feels that if he comes late, there'll be nothing left. I don't know how that applies to a dentist. <laughs> what, I'll have no teeth left? So he said, this paranoia I have about there not being anything left, he says, you think that's also coming from the concentration camp? In other words, he got the idea, it registered, and things started to make sense to him. Of course, if you didn't get in line for the piece of rotten bread or whatever it is they gave you at the concentration camp, if you didn't get there on time, there's nothing left, and then you have to fight somebody for a piece of bread. Or else you starve. That's not paranoia, that's reality. But in the son, who makes a very good living and has never been hungry a day in his life, for him, it's pathological because he thinks that it's about him. Once he knows that it's not about him, it's not pathological. It's just a terrible memory. A child can be born picking up where the parent left off. That's what it means from generation to generation. We are not a new beginning. We are a continuation. Now, of course, the good news far outweighs the bad. We are a continuation, which means that we continue all the good and the strength and the health and the holiness that has accumulated in our ancestors over the generations. We inherit it all. But we don't notice the good we notice the disturbance. We notice the bad. To heal people, to make people healthy, one of the best things you can do is to say, you're a descendant of Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. 
for the last 4,000 years, your ancestors have built up a reservoir of goodness and holiness and devotion and strength. You're an incredible human being. You must be. You can't fool Mother Nature. At the same time, you also inherited all the feelings of persecution and fear and embarrassment and so on that Jews have been experiencing for the last 2,000 years. So how do we make a baby? We come to the baby making with many ingredients. Which ones do you put into the baby? You've got a kitchen full of ingredients. How do you bake bread? Which ingredients do you use? Which ingredients don't you use? There's a certain way you make bread. You can't make bread the same way that you make uh, salads. When we come to the baby making, the first thing we have to know is that this process is 90% intangible. It's what you're thinking and what you're feeling and what you're remembering and what your excitement is that will determine the health of the baby. Let me put it this way. What kind of emotion, what kind of energy is baby-making energy? God created us in such a way that we have pleasure from food, but eating will not create a baby. I don't know if you heard about it, but that's, that's a fact. We have pleasure from a challenge, when we feel challenged, when we want to overcome an obstacle, from determination. We get pleasure from danger. We get pleasure from conquest. We get pleasure from fantasies, those are not the pleasures that make babies. No matter how intensely you feel a rush of excitement in a moment of danger, you're not going to get pregnant from it. That's not what makes babies. There is a certain pleasure that creates babies because according to Kabbalah, pleasure is the synonym for life. Life is pleasure. Pleasure is life. And that's why if you lose all pleasure in living, you simply don't wake up in the morning. It's finished. Life is pleasure. The pleasure that produces a baby is the pleasure that comes from intimacy. That's the nature of, of baby making. When a man and a woman experience the pleasure of intimacy with each other, that creates babies. More pleasure, healthier baby. Less pleasure, not such a healthy baby. But if you introduce other kinds of pleasure into the baby-making process, then you're, you're confusing the ingredients then we don't know what the result is going to be. Therefore, Torah says, and this is the part that has been neglected all these years, Torah says that in order to have a healthy baby, 
you must be focused and experiencing the pleasure of intimacy with the person that you're having the intimacy with. If you introduce another kind of pleasure, another kind of energy, another kind of excitement, you're disturbing the balance of ingredients and the baby will suffer for it. So for example, you're not allowed to be intimate. Husband and wife are not allowed to be intimate in a place that is not completely private because there is a fear of being interrupted. There's an element of danger, of risk. And that risk adds excitement to the relationship. But it's the wrong energy for babies. You want excitement, go on a roller coaster. Don't make babies. You want risk, rob a bank. Don't make babies. There's another kind of pleasure, and that is fantasy. To be with one person, but be thinking of another. That adds excitement, but it's the wrong energy for the baby. A third thing, when the other party doesn't really want to be intimate, but you force the issue, conquest. You prevail, and that gives you a certain amount of pleasure. And that pleasure should not go into a baby. And therefore, according to Torah, husband and wife may not be intimate if they're angry at each other. If they're angry at each other, why would they want to be intimate? Well, it's a matter of conquest. Wrong energy. You're not allowed to be intimate in a place that isn't completely private. Because that's exciting, but the wrong excitement. So for example, what kind of damage can, can result from this? Just one example, and there, I'm sure there are many. There's a certain bond that a baby intuitively feels to his mother. Natural. Or eventually to the father. It's natural. If we put the wrong ingredients into a child, we may end up having children who feel no bond. It's just not there. There's a coldness, there's an indifference, there's something missing in that bonding that is supposed to be natural between mother and child. And we find too many examples today where from the youngest age, the child simply is unresponsive. Oppositional, it's called now. Whatever you want, child doesn't want. From infancy. And then eventually when you talk to this girl and you say, why are you rolling your eyes at your mother? She's crying, she's upset. Not my problem, I got my own life to live. Toilet training did this to her? No. It's too fundamental to be caused by an angry word. The problem is almost cellular. This is your mother. As angry as you may be, when she breaks down and cries, you've got to respond like a human being. Nothing. That's one possible kind of damage. Another kind of damage might show up later in life where you have a child who is now an adult 
and gets married and, and cannot feel intimacy. Their mind is in one place, but their heart is someplace else. Whoever they're with, they're thinking about somebody else. They meet somebody right away, they're thinking, who else can I meet? And I don't know how they would diagnose this in, a, in, in psychological terms, but it's a very serious problem. Could this be the result of parents who, while creating this child with each other, were thinking about somebody else? And so the child was created from a partial intimacy, a half relationship. These are frightening thoughts. Sometimes we're better off not knowing. But these are not issues that are out of our control. These are so easily rectified. So for example, practically speaking, if you're going to make babies, don't ever have a few drinks before going to sleep. Not that a few drinks makes you an alcoholic. And not that if you have a few drinks, the child will be born with an alcohol content in its blood. But maybe when you're drunk, you're not as focused. Maybe when you're drunk, you're not as sensitive. Because after all, when you take a few drinks, what is the purpose of the drink? To relax, to desensitize, to lose some of your inhibitions. Can a child be born just a little absent-minded because when it was created, the parents were a little absent-minded because they had a few drinks, a little unfocused? I'm not suggesting that the reason every child today is on Ritalin is because every child was born with one of these, one of these disadvantages. But it's possible. I haven't heard any better explanation. So here's how our parents, for thousands of years, made babies. And these babies grew up to be incredible human beings who survived the most inhuman, the most impossible conditions, and not only remained alive, but remained decent, and were able to reproduce another generation of decent, healthy, and indestructible children. Here's how they did it. Husband and wife are intimate, mindfully, never absent-mindedly. Makes it a lot easier when you have two beds. When you have two beds, being intimate is a decision, not an accident. Their intimacies were always meaningful, mindful, purposeful. They were conscious of the fact that intimacy produces babies because abortions were not legal and birth control was difficult. So they were conscious of the fact that this is baby-making that they're involved in. I think this expression, making love, is a terrible expression. It's unreal, it's untrue, it's a distortion, it's, it's terrible. 
I think it's damaging. It's baby-making, not love-making. And of course, when you make a baby, it should be done lovingly. But what you're doing is baby-making, not love-making. You make love with your heart, not with your body. You make babies and put your heart into it. That's the right way. In the Gemara, we find the story of a woman who had incredible children. Spiritually, physically, they were just the envy of town. And the sages came to this woman and said, what are you doing that's producing such incredible children? And she said, my husband doesn't come to me until after one o'clock in the morning. That's it? <laughs> the magic hour? So the commentaries say, it's not a question of the hour. They were never intimate until after midnight when there were no more sounds in the house. Because every sound is a distraction. And so her husband, who was also one of the sages, would wait until everyone was asleep and there were no voices, there was no movement to distract him. That's how you make babies. If you have soundproof walls, you don't have to wait till one o'clock. But the idea is that making babies involves your mind and your thoughts much more than your body. Another thing our ancestors did, they never were intimate when they were angry or resentful. Because according to Torah, before every intimacy, there has to be conversation, which means a meeting of the minds. You've got to be on the same page. You're going to make a baby. It goes so far, and it's taken so seriously, because after all, who would protect Jewish children more than God? So God says that if a man decides to divorce his wife, he must move out of the house immediately. To prevent any possible intimacy from occurring that might produce a child. Because the child born from a father who has decided to divorce his wife is going to be a very troubled child. This is called the son of a divorced heart. You have to be on the same page. There has to be a meeting of the minds. There has to be a mindfulness of the fact that this could result in a baby. And then you have really healthy babies. Today we have problems. Taking a drink before going to sleep is the norm. Fantasizing is actually advocated by the experts. Conquest is a big thing, even at home. Exotic settings, experiments with different places and different... This is all very exciting, but it's not the excitement that produces babies. It should not be in the ingredient. This is how our parents did it. It's not difficult for us to do the same. And the byproduct of that, in addition to healthy children, 
who are bonded to their parents naturally, who will stand by their parents at the expense of their own lives naturally, who would never think of causing a parent to shed a tear naturally. In addition to having healthy children, the relationship between husband and wife also becomes ennobled. If every time there's intimacy between husband and wife and they maintain the standard for that intimacy as if this will produce a child, as if this might produce a child, then the relationship itself has become more noble, more dignified, more godly, more human. So a kind of intimacy that could produce a healthy child is also healthy for husband and wife, naturally. So when the Gemara says that the purpose of intimacy is for baby-making, and that is its only reason, it doesn't mean that husband and wife are intimate only when they can have a baby. Intimacy between husband and wife stands on its own. That's the nature of their relationship. Then what is the meaning of the statement that the only purpose for intimacy is child-making? The idea there is, the Gemara is not telling you when to be intimate, the Gemara is telling you how to be intimate. You should always be intimate in the way that would be appropriate for child-making. If it's not good enough for the baby, then it's not good enough for the husband and wife. Divine wisdom and practical experience are finally merging. We need to live and function on a level that we once considered to be ideal, noble, beyond the letter of the law, and now we realize it's just good for the baby. It's just the way healthy babies are born. And so in this progress, in this chart of bringing heaven down to earth, or more, bringing God past heaven down to earth, we're seeing this happening every single day. Every day we find more examples of where what was once considered a mystical thing has now become practical, realistic, beneficial, necessary, for, for human life. We once thought that civilization, the civilization of society, will produce healthy people, healthy countries, healthy nations. We now know that that's not true. Civilization without Torah is simply a more sophisticated way of being evil. Germany was civilized. Well, almost. They were civilized. Even in their evil, they were civilized. Because you can't separate civilization from Torah. If the United States is going to survive as a society, if the United States can stand up to Islamic terror, it won't be because we're civilized. It'll be because we're moral. And how do we know that we're moral? Because we're following the Ten Commandments.
Nothing's changed. From the most uncivil to the most civil, either you have Ten Commandments or you're doomed. Nothing's changed. Only now we're realizing it. For many years we thought, people are good. You don't need God. People are good when they have God. When they don't have God, they're not good. Some are civilized, some are not, but they're not good. So godliness and nature are no longer two separate things. Making babies is a religious, spiritual experience, even when you don't think so, because you can't fool Mother Nature. Making a baby is a spiritual event. So we got to do it right. And when we do it right, we save ourselves a lot of grief. Parents can't wait to have a baby. Everybody gets married, they want to have a baby. Then that baby grows up, and your life is one unending misery because of what that baby does to you. If, if the baby doesn't, doesn't start off right. So to save ourselves a lot of grief, to not only have a healthy baby for the first two years, to have a healthy baby until, until they're babying you, you got to start off right on the cellular level. Make a Jewish child, not just a child. Make a healthy child, not just a body, not just something cute, something healthy, something strong, something godly, with godly instincts and godly feelings. In the old country, so I've heard, in the old country, they used to say, what is the greatest blessing in having a child? You'll have a good child. Someone will say Kaddish for you. We're talking about healthy people here. And yet that was kind of the, the summary. To sum up all the goodness that a child can do, for, somebody will say Kaddish for you. There are children who don't say Kaddish for their parents. Not because they're not religious, the child who will say Kaddish is the child who stands by you. Why? Because they're religious? No, because they're healthy. And why are they healthy? Because you created them that way. For probably the fifth time you'll hear this story. The Kotzka Rebbe was asked, how well do you know your son? He said, how well I know my son? I know with what thoughts I invited him into this world at conception. That's called healthy babies. That's how you make babies. You pick the thoughts. You create the setting. You extend the invitation. Can such a child go bad? Not even if it goes through a holocaust. 